0: We've arrived at the last chapter of the book of Jonah, at the conclusion of this sermon series that we've been going through in the last month. If you haven't been here, it's pretty easy to catch up because the story of Jonah is somewhat simple. It's somewhat short. It's God coming to Jonah and calling Jonah, and God wants Jonah to obey him, and God wants Jonah to serve him, and God wants Jonah to love him and to be loved by him. And when God comes to Jonah and calls him to all these things, uh, Jonah says, no. He doesn't want to do it. He sees God coming into his life, and he hears the call, and he thinks, this is going to be too hard. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do the things God is calling me to. I don't want to live this life. And so Jonah says, no. And he decides to go in the exact opposite direction of where God wanted to send him. He decides to run in the other direction. He decides to ignore God's voice. And what happens then is what often happens when we ignore God's voice and we refuse him is a storm comes up and it engulfs Jonah's life. And what also happens in Jonah's life is the same thing sometimes that happens in our lives. When we disobey God, when we run from God, that storm that comes up in our life, it spills over into the lives of the people around us. That's what happened with Jonah. And at that point, the infamous, notorious fish comes into Jonah's life Sometimes translated whale. It swallows him up and it takes him down to the bottom of the sea. It's the lowest point in his life. It's the darkest point in his life. And it turns out to be maybe the most beautiful point in his life because it's the first time in the whole book. And I wonder, maybe one of the first times in Jonah's life where he really prays. He really calls out to God. Some of you know what that's like, that it's not until you're at the very bottom. And it's not until you're in the dark that you reach out to God that in that darkness you see his light maybe for the first time. If you're ever in that situation, if you're ever feeling like you're in the dark, you should call out to God and receive his love and to ask him for help. That's what Jonah does. That's what he does in chapter 2. But you know, sometimes when you have an epiphany and it wears off pretty quickly, Jonah kind of reverts back to form. He still is kind of a stubborn person. He's still kind of wanting to run away from God, even though he goes and does what God calls him to do. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches God's judgment to them. He preaches God's mercy to them. And that good news that he preaches, they hear it and they turn. And when God has mercy on them, Jonah is mad about it. He's really angry. All throughout this book, Jonah is just having a tough time of it. But here's the thing. It's one of the things that I love about this book. The book of Jonah shows us What the Bible is really about. Because you should know this, if you're a person of faith, or even if you're just investigating the faith, you should know that the Bible is primarily not a book full of inspirational stories about people that had great faith and did wonderful things. It's not. There are some instances in the Bible where God created courage in people, and faith and wonderful things, there are a few. But what the Bible primarily is about, listen to me, the the Bible primarily is about God. It's about God calling people who are broken, people who need to be forgiven. The Bible is about God and his grace coming into people's lives who don't deserve it to forgive them and to transform them so that they can serve. The Bible is about God's love and about God's power in the lives of people who are broken, just like Jonah. It's God coming into Jonah's life. This is what the book of Jonah is about. He's coming into Jonah's life and he's saying, I love you. Will you love me back? Will you turn to me and be saved? Will you be used by me? That's the biggest thing that happens in Jonah's life. And that's why we're calling this series Jonah and the Word. We're playing a little bit with what we usually think of Jonah and the whale. But we're calling it Jonah in the word because the most important thing that happens to Jonah in his life is not that he ended up in that whale. It's that God came to him and spoke to him. And that question that was put to him, I love you, will you love me back? It's put to every single one of us too, all the time. One of the things I love about uh, teaching and leading and being a pastor is getting to talk to people about the things that we're all studying together and thinking about together. I've had a lot of great conversations with many of you about Jonah. And we've said some pretty awful things about Jonah, you and I. I've had some conversations and we've decided that Jonah is stubborn and he's a jerk and he's mean and a lot of other things that aren't printable from the pulpit. But here's the thing. I feel kind of a little bit of sympathy for Jonah. I really do because he's stubborn and he's angry and he's confused. But that kind of describes all of us at one point in time or another, wouldn't you say? And see, the only difference between you and I and Jonah is that Jonah's story got written down and now people read it all the time and talk about it. I sort of think about Jonah maybe being in heaven right now and the people around him saying, (laughs) they're laughing about you again. Yeah, I know, I know. All the worst parts of his life are there to be discussed. Would you love it if the worst parts of your life where you were the most stubborn, the most angry, and the most confused about what was important got published in the best-selling book of all time? (laughs) Be tough. Here's the thing. There is a story being written about your life. There is a story being written about your life in heaven right now. And the same kind of story that's going on in Jonah's story, it's going on in your story too. It's God coming to you and saying, I love you. Are you going to love me back? Are you going to turn to me to be saved? Are you going to be transformed by me and used? Are you going to run? It's the same thing. It's not just Jonah and the word. It's Jim and the word. It's Michelle and the word. It's Jeff and the word. It's Dio and the Word. It's Sarah and the Word. It's Vito and the Word. These stories are all being written, and they're open-ended. We don't know how they're going to end. How is your story going to end up? Are you going to turn to God and be saved? Are you going to be forgiven? Or are you going to be stubborn and run? If I have any guess about any of you, maybe it'll be a little bit of a mix of all of those things. That's what it is for Jonah. And that's the reason we're going over this again and again, to see how the contours of it shape out in Jonah's life. So now let's turn now to the very last chapter of Jonah. We'll see how it works out there at the very end for him. If you brought your Bibles along, let's take a look at Jonah 4. But if you didn't, the verses will come right behind me right here. The scene opens after Jonah has preached to Nineveh. God's judgment was going to come down upon these people who were very wicked, but they turned to God and God has mercy on them. We find out here at the beginning of Jonah chapter four, Jonah is not happy about that, but it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life for me for death is better to me than life. Jonah is really, I was gonna say confused, it's worse than that. There is something broken inside of Jonah that's almost irreparable. There's something that's so, he's pleading for death because other people got mercy. Now, I want to give a little light on this to show why it is maybe that he felt this way. Let's look at Jonah's context. Jonah was asked to go to preach to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, Israel's neighbors to their east. Assyria was a threat to Israel, and they were a nation that was cruel and violent. They were a threat. They were enemies. And as far as Jonah can see, the very best thing that could happen for Israel, was that that threat would get taken care of, that Assyria would be wiped out. And at the very beginning, you can think that Jonah think, okay, God's gonna go and judge them. That's what he wants to see happen. And you can kind of see why that would be a good thing for Israel if they're enemies, if these people of blood, that's what the book of Nahum says, that they're a people of blood, that they would be pushed out. But God has mercy on them. Now, why does God do that? The answer comes in chapter three. It's because they repent. They turn towards God. Here's the funny thing, though. If you go and look at their repentance in chapter 3, it's pretty thin. What they do to repent is a few things. They put on sackcloth and ashes. They put on rough fabric to represent repentance. They put on dirt to represent kind of a penitent state of mind. But think about those two things. Those are skin deep, literally. They're just on the outside, there's no way that they can prove that they've really changed. They call to God, but it reminds me a little bit of what somebody does when they're on the playground. Do you remember when you were growing up and somebody's going around and bopping people and tripping them and everything like that? And the teacher comes, hey, 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 tell them you're sorry. And then the person would go, sorry. <laughs> and if you think I'm kidding, go back and look at chapter three. The Assyrians go, uh, we've been really super violent, sorry. They don't call on God's covenant name, Yahweh. They just say God. They don't adopt the Mosaic law. They don't become kosher. They don't go to the temple. Their repentance seems a little bit thin. They haven't had time to prove that they're not going to be a violent people. And yet God has mercy on them. Now, can you see a little bit more clearly now why Jonah might be angry about this or confused by this? For him, there's some people that you're supposed to have mercy on and other people... Maybe they don't really deserve it. That's Jonah's context. Now let's think about your context. Just like Jonah, I suspect there are people in your life that you're pretty happy to have mercy upon. The people that you get and that get you, the people that maybe you're close to, maybe your family, maybe the people who are alike, There are people that you want to show mercy to that you're gonna, even if they mess up, you're with them and you hope that they receive God's mercy too. That's what Jonah was like. He had people in his life that he was happy to show mercy to, including in 2 Kings chapter 14, it's the only other mention of the prophet Jonah. In 2 Kings 14, he's with a king named Jeroboam, a king of Israel. And it says that Jeroboam is a wicked man. He's a wicked king the nation of Israel was kind of plunging down into that wickedness. And it says in 2 Kings 14, but through the work of Jonah, Israel's borders were restored. That means that Jonah said, hey, I know everybody here in Israel is not acting right, but God's gonna have mercy and it's gonna be okay. There are people in his life that he's okay to show mercy to. But there are other people in his life that he is not sympathetic to, that he does not want to show mercy to. And maybe, again, back to your contents, maybe it's the same with you. Maybe there are certain people in your life that you're like, yeah, they get it. I know they messed up. But other people, you're like, no, 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 they're a threat. And I, I got to oppose them. I just have to oppose them. They're enemies. Maybe if you're more of a conservative person, if you're a person that would be, maybe it would consider more traditional, it might be, it might be, that you look at people that are more progressive and you think, that's why this country is failing right now. It's their it's their ideas and their ideals and their values. It's dragging this country down and it opposes God's truth. And they're enemies. They just are. I can't help it. They're enemies and they're turning away from God. And I've got no sympathy for them. Because they're running in the other direction. And, And and I just I can't abide by it. And I think God would want me to oppose. They don't deserve God's mercy. No, they have to change and they have to really mean it. It can't be any of this surface stuff. That might be if you're a conservative person. If you're a more progressive person, you might look at more conservative people and say, well, they have no heart. They they, they have no soul. They don't love people. They're they're just mean-spirited, and they're opposing people, and I'm gonna oppose them because that's what God would want. And I have to oppose them because they're opposing God's ways and God's love. They're enemies. They're a threat. I want them out. Now, if you recognize yourself In that description, in any kind of way, just a little bit, I want you to remember back. You remember those bracelets people used to wear that said WWJD? What would Jesus do? Well, every time you look at the people around you and you say they're a threat, I don't want them to have mercy, they're enemies. You're wearing a bracelet. It's WWJD. What would Jonah do? Okay, I want you to take that bracelet off and I want you to put on the new self which is made in the image of God. What does God think about the enemy of his people? Look at this. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand, as well as many animals? God loves the city of Nineveh. And look, he's not saying that they're right. He says they don't know their right hand from their left hand. You know, that's a way of saying they are morally lost. They are a wicked people, but he has mercy on them. They just turn a little bit, and he has a hair-trigger compassion. All right, I'll save you. I'll have mercy on you. I know you're wrong, but I'm going to have mercy on you. In their lostness, God has compassion on them. And if we want to follow after the God who loves his enemies, the one who sent his son, who laid down his life for us while we were yet, anyone? Sinners. Okay, if you want to follow after the Jesus who laid down his life for sinners, then you have to be willing to love and have compassion on people that you think they don't get it, they're wrong, they are a threat. And if you have that in you, I've got a little bit of difficult news. God wants that out of you too. And the way that he's going to get that out of you, the way he's going to shape you, the way he's going to heal you from the inside can sometimes be a little hard to take. I want you to look at what happens to Jonah. God is trying to shape Jonah. God is working in Jonah's life, and it's not comfortable. Take a look at this. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. Oh, Jonah. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. You know what he's doing? He's taking a folding chair out to the outside of town. He brought a cooler of beer with him, and he's waiting for the fireworks show. Not the fireworks show in the sky, the one that's going to come down on Nineveh. He's hoping God will change his mind, that God will finally send judgment. You know what we're talking about, God. Let's do this. Come on. But poor Jonah, the judgment does come. It doesn't come on the Ninevites. And it's not fireworks. It's just kind of funny. Watch this. So the Lord God appointed a plant. And it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. God is so good. Hallelujah. He is so generous. He creates a plant. Psalm 121, the, shade, the sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. I am your shade at your right hand. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. But let's keep going here. He appointed something for Jonah's comfort. What else does he appoint? But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. God is appointing things in Jonah's life. What a good God. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Cheer up, Jonah. It's gonna get worse. More appointing to come. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind. (laughs) And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. I'm laughing. I shouldn't have laughed. Because he is broken inside. He is going into the abyss. Think about this now. He cares more about a plant than he does 120,000 people. He cares more about a thing than he does people who are created in God's image People who are facing imminent destruction, he wants that more. He suffers more over the destruction of his shelter. He cares more about things than he does about people. This should be a caution to every one of us. Those of us with a lot of resources and maybe those of us with not very many resources. Your heart can get attached to things and you'll place them in priority over the people in your life. You're liable to do it. We are all liable to do it. And it can sneak into your life. And it can disrupt friends and families and communities because you'll end up loving things more than people. My wife's parents lived in Germany for a while. They told me that there's a saying among German people, a little, a little joke that they'll share with one another. It goes like this. Somebody will come to you and say, hey, how are things with your family? And you say, oh, it's fine. And they'll say, oh, oh, I see the estate hasn't been settled yet. Think about that for a second. Let it, keep, let it sink in. It means that sooner or later, often families fight about what? Property and money and who gets what. And I I, I know this has never happened in your family and nobody with you have ever known, but sometimes after estates are settled, people don't talk to each other or get divided by who got what. And this is what's going on with Jonah. He's got such brokenness inside that what God is doing is, I don't want to leave you there. I don't want to leave you, Jonah, in a place where you hate your enemies, and you don't want people around you to get mercy, and you care more about things than people. So what God is doing is he's pushing Jonah, and he's pulling Jonah, and he's appointing things that are really hard. And this shows us that sometimes God's presence in your life, it's not going to feel great. We look at it and we see, of course, Jonah needs this. He is going into the abyss. If God doesn't interrupt his life, he doesn't get in there and really get after him, he's gonna fall. But when it comes to our own life, we want something different. I, I hear this all the time in pastoral meetings and I hear it in a voice in my own head and it goes like this. I wish I could sense God's presence more in my life. Have you ever felt that? I wish I knew God was at work in my life more. Ooh, be careful what you ask for. I wish God would appoint certain things in my life to transform me. And I think what we mean most of the time when we say that is, I wish I felt more peace. I wish the problems that I had were gone. And then I would know that God was really at work. Then I would know God's love. If the debt were going away and my relationships were reconciled, and I had some of the wonderful things that I always wanted, but I never got to have. If I had those, then I knew God was at work. Sometimes God will be at work in your life, and it is not going to feel good. That he's trying to change you. That he's trying to have you let go of certain things that are going to kill you, and he wants to embrace you to embrace other things that, from your viewpoint right now, don't look all that good, but are they going to be the things that he'll use to save you? Some of you know the writer Elizabeth Elliott. She tells a story of going to some friends in Wales who had a farm. They were shepherds and they kept sheep. And once a year, they had to take those sheep and they had to dunk them in an antiseptic that would kill the parasites on them that if they weren't killed would kill the sheep. And so there, the loving shepherd would scoop up the lamb and take it over to a big vat and dunk it down into a pool of antiseptic and the lamb would be shaking and wonder, why is my shepherd doing this to me? It feels like my shepherd is trying to kill me. Has it ever felt like your shepherd is trying to kill you? And sometimes you and I will not be able to see it. The shepherd wouldn't be able to say to the sheep, listen, I have to explain this to you. Parasites (laughs) will get into your skin and it will begin to eat away. Your health will diminish. You won't be able to frolic and run around. I want you to be a sheep that's loving and free. No, the, the, the sheep isn't gonna understand that. Sometimes you and I will not understand what God is up to. Now, here's the thing. I wanna be clear about this. Sometimes the suffering in our life, it comes because God has appointed something to shake us up. Sometimes the suffering in our life just comes because of the brokenness of the world. We don't know what it is, but what we do know is that always what we are called to do is to turn towards that shepherd who is walking with us through the valley of the shadow of death, who will always be with us and never leave us or forsake us. Your shepherd is a good shepherd. Here's the way I wanna end. I wanna end with Jonah's description of God. Do you remember that description at the beginning? He says it kind of bitterly. He says, I knew it. I knew, God, that you were merciful. I knew you were forgiving I knew you were going to be a softie. The, the way he describes God is a really famous way. If you know anything about the Bible, that description, God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, that description is all over the Bible. It's in Joel 2, Psalm 86, Psalm 103, Psalm 145, a few others, but the most famous place, and probably the first place it appears, is in Exodus 34, right as God is giving the Ten Commandments to Moses he also gives a description of who he is. Look at this. The Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. We could do a month's worth of sermons just on these two verses, but just to sum them up, I want you to look at one word there, the word compassionate. Our God is compassionate. You know that in the English, the word compassionate means somebody who suffers with. Co-passion, suffering alongside somebody. God's love is a compassionate love. It means his love suffers with. It means that his love has a cost, and we know that love always has a cost. And because love has a cost, it means that forgiveness always has a cost, too. It means that if you want to love somebody well, it means that it's going to cost you. If you want to forgive somebody, it's going to cost. I'll give you a very trite example. I go over to your house. You have a very expensive, beautiful vase. And I, in my clumsiness, I knock it over. You look to me and you say, it's okay. I forgive you but somebody is still going to have to pay for that vase. It's lost. It's going to have to be reclaimed. There's going to be a cost for that forgiveness. It's the same thing in our personal lives. If you have a relationship that's broken, let's say I have hurt you with my words. For you to forgive me, you're going to have to bear that. You're going to have to bear a cost. Forgiveness always costs. In this description of who God is, take a look at it very carefully. He is compassionate. He keeps loving kindness. Look at the end there who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. His loving kindness is going to come, but it has to forgive. And for God to love us fully and completely, there's gonna be a cost. His cost, his love is not free. The only difference with God is though, he bears the cost himself. He doesn't make us pay the cost of his love. He himself bears it. Do you remember what Jesus says on the cross? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do you ever wonder he didn't say that at the sermon on the mount he could have said that any other time but he didn't say it in a sermon before he went to the cross he says it on the cross because on the cross he is bearing the cost of forgiveness for you and he's bearing the cost of love for you and he's bearing the weight of people who do not know the left hand their left hand from the right and that's you and that's me, and it's all those people in Nineveh, and it's each one of God's children, his sheep that he lays down his life for. And so, as you consider the God who is compassionate and gracious, who's slow to anger, you should turn towards him, but you should also know there is a cost that's been born, but it's been born by Jesus. And that's why he is the one who we make such a big deal about. He's the one who everything is about. He is the one that everything holds together in, because he is the one who has borne the cost for us, who has joined us to God in a bond that can never be broken. And that's true for every single one of us. And because it's true, you should, in the story of your life, turn and say, you do love me. I want to love you back. You have called me to serve you. I'm going to follow after you. I don't always see what it's all about, but I'm going to follow you, and I'm going to serve. And I'm going to be transformed, and I'm going to get it wrong, just like Jonah but you're going to bear with me because you are a good shepherd. Dear friends, dear Renaissance, look to this one who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, who is compassionate to you, who has borne the cost so that you could be a beloved child of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, you have borne the cost for us in your son Jesus so that we can belong to you. I give you thanks for every person here. And I pray that your love and your spirit would descend in this place so that we would see your love and your care, the high cost that you paid so that we can be your children. I pray for each person here that whether it be for the first time, or whether it be for the 10,000th time, that we could say yes to you, to receive your love and to love you back, to be transformed by your mercy and to be used by you in your kingdom. We see in Jonah that you use people who are sometimes angry and sometimes confused and sometimes who have the wrong priorities. That's all of us. And so we offer up ourselves so that you would use us and that we would find great joy in being used by you in your kingdom. We pray that you would uh, give us opportunities, not only to receive your love, but also to show your love to others to be your ambassadors, your witnesses in this world. We thank you for your word that shows us all of this, that you reveal yourself to us so generously. And so we offer you our thanks and our praise and all of God's people said together, amen.